Alright guys, welcome to episode 55 of the Triage Method Podcast. We are missing Mr. Paddy Farrell this week and he has been replaced. So instead of Paddy, I'm going to be talking with Dave Nolan today of Synapse Performance. Um, I've known Dave for a good few years now. We both initially Im- were born actually on the same, oh no, not the same day, you're a year older. Yeah, a year older. <laughs> but yeah, we have the same birthday. We both went into sports science in first year. So that's initially what I studied. I don't think I've even said that in the podcast. But after first year, I left. And so Dave now hates me because I'm a physio. And everyone knows that the sports scientists hate the physios in UL um, and vice versa. It's just standard. So, so yeah, Dave's been doing some good stuff since. Um, so how are you, Dave? Do you want to give a brief introduction into what you do? Um, and then we can we can get moving into some stuff. Perfect. Thank you very much for having me on. I wouldn't say I'm a replacement for Paddy, but I'll try do my best. Um <laughs> Yeah, so as you said, um, we went into sports science together. You went to the, the dark side. into, yeah. But I I suppose my attitude at the time in first year sports science, like glorified massage is what I used to call it. Yeah, <laughs> and I agreed, with, I agreed with you. <laughs> <laughs> but um, thankfully now, any good physios I know probably engage very little in massage, if at all. I, my yes. views on the industry have changed quite a lot. Um, but yeah, I pursued finished out that degree, Sport and Exercise Science, so I suppose from an academic perspective, that's my undergrad, first class honours for Sport and Exercise Sciences. I then went on, spent 15 months in nutrition research in UCD, um, following that, uh, looking at kind of satiety, hormonal stuff and hunger responses, that kind of thing. Um, went out of that for a while, and currently, in from the research academic side, I'm based out at DCU, under Dr. Brendan Egan, where my time is split between research into sarcopenia and nutritional exercise interventions for the treatment of sarcopenia, and then also in acute weight cutting strategies for strength sports and um, weight manipulation. And hopefully, that weight cutting stuff will form the basis of a PhD all going to plan. So, from a research perspective, that's um, my background. As you said, I have synapse performance then as well, which is. Um, a coaching consultancy media content company I suppose similar to triage in the aims of the company just in a slightly different sector I suppose or a different demographic yeah. but obviously quite a lot of um, uh, overlap there so I do the standard online coaching working predominantly with field-based sport players um, online content production through your standard social media channels and then the Synapse podcast and um, so that's the company side and then outside of that I'm currently the head of athletic performance at Rugby Academy Ireland so that's hands-on working with um, elite level uh, rugby players preparing them for essentially a, what you call a preparation camp an eight-month-long preparation camp where we bring rugby players in who are on the cusp of turning professional train them up for eight months and then we place them into um, trials with professional teams and hopefully want to get professional contracts so currently that is where my time is split between those three separate areas and yeah i have some other things that probably that'll turn to four separate areas in the coming weeks but at the moment that's what i do day day to day a bit a bit of everything you're a busy man it sounds like (laughs) try to be anyway Brilliant. And I gather that you used to play a bit of gas. Is that right? That, that would be right. Um, I suppose from my sporting background, I would have been a gas man from 
underage up to senior. For, I would have been on the kind of I'm a Clare man, so I would have been on the Clare squads up until minor, and then um, I would have played my senior football with Suncroft here club in Clare. Um, so we would have played intermediate and senior championship. Um, left in the last couple of years, kind of just got too busy straight away into powerlifting. Have competed uh, regularly in as competitive powerlifter over the last two years. And then throughout the last 10 years, up to a couple of years ago, I would have um, fought competitively then in combat sports. Savage, savage. So you've had your, your hands in a lot of areas. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I didn't know. That's a totally different. <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't know what you, you dad boys be getting up to. Um, but I, is, it, is it also true that you've done a little bit of strength and conditioning with Ga? In the oh meantime. yes, um, I suppose yeah. In terms of, I work actively as a strength and conditioning coach full time now at the rugby academy. But before that, I would have been involved with Clare GA strength and conditioning, a few different club teams um, around Clare, and outside of that, would have consulted with quite a few on just going in, assessing their strength and conditioning program, making recommendations, and kind of leaving like that as a consultant, more so than a full time S and C coach. And um, then just with various individual athletes, both in person and online, a lot of whom are rugby and GA players. Savage. And that sort of brings us to to the reason that we wanted to get you on today. Um, so, you know, for the listeners, you'll have heard, like me and Paddy talk about GNA, or GNA, GAA, that says it already. Uh, talk, talk about GAA a little bit here and there, you know, talking about different things in relation to training and nutrition and even injury prevention. We talked a bit about it in the last podcast. Um, but one of the things we didn't want to do was have this sort of ivory tower discussion whereby we talk about strength conditioning and nutrition, you know, without having any sort of skin in the game at all. Because I think you'll agree, Dave, that the reality of on the ground strength conditioning um, is very different to how we might want it to be in an ideal world. And I think, you know, we work with a lot of people online that do play GA and do play sports but when you're working with a person one-to-one, it's much easier than it is to sort of roll out an effective intervention to a group when everyone has different needs. And even within the team, you know, when people are playing in different positions and, all, and, and that sort of stuff as well. Um, so that's why we wanted to have this discussion. So we want to present some ideas in relation to strength and conditioning for people who are going to be listening. You know, some, some are personal trainers who will probably work with GAA athletes mm-hmm. in their time summer GA athletes themselves and even if you're not interested in GA specifically you can also take away a lot of the principles from this and apply them to a lot of other field sports um, and I think that's that's sort of a fair way of wrapping it up so if we were to if we were to start this I think we were talking about before before we came on we spoke a little bit about how strength and conditioning often isn't appreciated um, by by GA players you know I think there might be a handful of players on the team who are really into doing their own training on the side or a team might be lucky enough to have a really good strength conditioning coach but i think classically the philosophy is you know very much old school in terms of getting the lads to go out and just do a lot of laps strength training didn't really feature that much so what would your perspective be on the role of strength and conditioning and what do you see in terms of how, how is it you know being rolled out on the ground these days yeah like that is it's so broad and I suppose as you said it is important to kind of differentiate how we work one on one with guys online because as you said anyone who comes to say you or me for SNC online they follow us on social media they know our message so therefore they probably have an interest 
and are quite proficient in S&C. So they're coming to us probably decent enough nutrition habits and decent competency in that, and we can work with them one-on-one. -on -one. Now, if you land yourself or you get a role within a team that you have to go stand in the gym with 30 guys, that's a totally different scenario. So the management will bring you in as the S&C. That's great. Um, you could stand there with 30 guys and half of them mightn't think you're necessary at all. They might think it's absolute horseshit what you're doing in the gym, not important. So that's the first thing you've come on. You get buy-in from 30 guys rather than one guy who, if they're coming to you for pay for coaching, you've already got the buy-in from them. Yes. So you have to get buy-in from guys who think that you're not needed. So you have to show them the value of you. And then I think the other big thing that's a learning curve for young SNC coaches, when you are an SNC in a team environment, you are a service provider first and foremost to the head coach or the management. If they don't like you, they will get rid of you quite quickly and you are easily replaceable. So you're going in and unlike working one-on-one, -on -one, you may have to make compromises because the management and the managers and selectors, they will have their own idea of what strength and conditioning should look like. You will have your idea of what strength and conditioning should look like, but you can't go in and tell the management, look, at I know you're managing 20 years, you have this many titles, but what you're doing is wrong. This is yeah. what we're going to do now. So that's kind of a thing. So I won't be overly harsh on some trainers when I see them do things that I would think is kind of inappropriate because we don't know the context. They might be kind of fighting battles with, they know what's wrong, but they're letting the manager have this one little win because it allows them to do something even better um, or more important, more priority down the line. But across the board, S&C in, in um, GA is quite poor from what I see. And we probably see that through relatively high injury rates with um, across GA and more so the nature of those injury rates and we can go into that in a little while but as you said there's a lot of this old school mentality there's these kind of fallacies where people appeal to kind of historical or appeal to look at we've all heard of where we try to change things up and like look we weren't doing back, that back when we were in championship in the late 90s or whatever it's like that team in the late 90s used to be doing this x y and z and we're like yeah, well, the game has moved on in those 20 years. The, the distances, the, the velocities that the guys cover on the pitch, the manners of the game have moved on. So this kind of old-school approach where we just run laps all the time, we, we have moved on quite a bit from that. Now, again, we get into it when we talk about strength and conditioning principles, some of that more endurance-based stuff can be useful when applied properly and appropriately. But there is this idea, look, we don't need S&C. Uh, guys should just work on the skills of the game, and which I probably to my own detriment as an SSE coach shoot myself in the foot which is in a lot of cases true a lot of guys put too much focus into the gym work and a lot of time what makes great GA players are the most skillful ones the ones that can read the game well kick off both feet and execute the skills of the game appropriately now if you have guys that have all those skills and you have two guys matched with even levels of skill if one of them has a greater aerobic capacity can get to greater sprint speeds, can repeat repeatedly hit those sprint speeds, and has overall greater athletic prowess, that's when he's going to come out on top. If you have two guys that are matched with skills, the one who is more powerful, faster, stronger, and can endure more, is likely going to be uh, the one that wins out there. So I think we need this mentality that they're not mutually exclusive, where it's not that we just focus on developing athletes or we focus on developing skillful players. We should develop high, highly skilled athletes. So this is going a long way around it, but this idea that 
this mentality of let's just focus on making skillful players, that's great until you have two guys who have equal amount of skill. It's the one who's the better athlete then is going to come out on top in those scenarios. Um, and I think, you know, the skills coaches are always going to want more time with their athletes. This S&C guy is always going to say, no, I need more S&C. It's like the thing, you know, a surgeon's going to want to cut, a fucking a physio's going to want to rub you. But, um, <laughs> but uh, unfortunately. yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> but that, that's the way it is. But we need more communication working together that we realise develop, developing powerful, robust, strong, fast athletes is important. But equally, the SNC shouldn't be at the detriment of developing skillful players. Because we saw that even with the Kildare teams and some of the teams in the mid-2000s when SNC blew up in GA, we had huge players, very strong guys, but the skill level was poor and the skillful teams went out. Where now we have Dublin, who are an example of extremely skilled footballers and immaculate, uh, brilliant. Uh, as a Kildare man, it hurts me to say it, but absolutely <laughs> fantastic athletes as well. And we've seen their dominance where you can get really skillful players who have huge athletic prowess. And when you combine those, you come out with supreme uh, GA athletes. So, And then, obviously, there's um, if we know the stronger athletes tend to be uh, more resilient when it comes to injury risk. So if it's allowing you to perform better on the pitch and also keeping you on the pitch longer due to decreased injury risk, then why would you not be doing some degree of strength and conditioning? And look at even uh, the idea that strength and conditioning, there is a conditioning element there. It's not just all about lifting big weights. It's There's no fat players that do really well. Like Body composition is one of the main kind of determinants between elite and sub-elite when you look at the best players are aerobically very fit but also quite lean and healthy then as well. So that's a big part of it as well, being able to move and continually uh, move. Yeah, so you can see there's kind of, there's a lot of components to it and I think, you know, that is the difficult thing, especially if someone is, let's say, playing GA and they also work a job, they probably think of all this stuff and they're like, oh man, Dave is saying I have to work on my skills and I have to get strong and I have to be conditioned and I have to be lean and it's like, whoa, it's a lot of work, Gav. And I definitely appreciate that as someone who hasn't played GA, I'm like, you know, fair play to anyone that does nail it all. Um, but yeah, you, you, you touched on an important point because I do have... I've got one client who, who is, his long-term goal is to get on the county team. And, you know, we've made fantastic progress in terms of building up lots of strength, um, improving his conditioning and all that sort of stuff. And, like, we just had this chat, like, last week about how, like, I was saying to him, you know, realistically, you're at the top of your team in terms of strength. Like, more strength is, like, it might be beneficial, but realistically, it's unlikely to be the thing that's making the difference. And, you know, he was saying about how he was, like, he was agreeing and saying, you know, I need to work on my skills. It's something he had discussed with his manager. And that's ultimately what he needs to put a lot of time in, into now over the summer. And I think it can be very easy for us to um, sort of let the pendulum swing too far, as you alluded to, especially for like myself or Paddy, who aren't, you know, coaching people on the ground in terms of GA. It's easy to get so biased towards the strength and conditioning stuff. So, so that is an important point. Mm. And if we start with the sort of, strength training side of things like i've i've looked at some programs from even even at county level strength and conditioning and you know seen seen some programs where i'm like wow is this person like training for mr olympia or what's the crack um so so you do see some some funky stuff so i think what would be good if we could tease out like what are the actual priorities in terms of strength training because i think it's difficult for people to 
to kind of grasp because there's a pendulum of specificity there as well. Yeah. You know, some, some people make the claim that our oh, training needs to be specific. So they start doing this like single leg BOSU ball kind of stuff. Yeah. But then, uh, then on the other hand, you don't want to be the person that literally just trains like a power lift or a bodybuilder yeah. either. So, so how do we sort of get to that sweet spot? That is, that is the question. And there's a few points in there that you make. And like that, as you said, when guys like that, to get strong, um, they're at the top of their strength, they're the best performing in repeated sprint tests, they're aerobically the best, you know, that's where we're kind of like, okay, it's your skills that are holding you back from making that leap now. And I think, as you know, and uh, the listeners um, should know, or I won't presume they should know, it's any of these qualities, once you get strength to a certain level, it's quite easy to keep it there. Like, mm. if you're training three, four times a week strength training to get to a certain level, we can cut that back down to two sessions and maintain strength. Same with aerobic fitness. Once we push you to a certain level, it's not that hard to maintain it. So if it was taking us four sessions to build you to a certain level, we might be able to cut the training volume in half and maintain you at that level. So a lot of time when guys come to me, they might be on four or five gym sessions a week. And I'm like, look, let's cut that back down to three sessions and take those other two hours you were going to be in the gym. Let's go out and practice your tackling for an hour. Let's go out and practice your left foot kicking, all this kind of stuff, or right foot, whatever it may be, the skills of the game. Because most guys can't tackle properly. Most guys can't kick off both feet. And where these at the county level, these are the things that will make uh, or break players. So as you said, that's important that once you get strong, there is a certain level that's strong enough. You know what I mean? If, if, if you look at sprint speed and correlation with squat strength, it's not a perfect correlation, but you see up to around improvements up to around double body weight squat you could say mm-hmm. with sprint, sprint, sprint speed now when you get to 1.7 1.8 body weight squat or up around this it takes a bit of while and a lot of effort to push you to 1.9 2.1 where that time investment that you have to put in to see that minimal strength gain that may help improve your sprint performance your risk to reward or your benefit to time ratio isn't really there so that's where you can spend more time on the um, working on the skills again. So that's the first and foremost thing. Like, once we get to certain levels of strength and aerobic performance and anaerobic performance, we don't need much to keep there. What is important when it comes to gym work? And as you said, I've seen a lot of the gym work that's out there. A lot of it comes from just old school SC thinking and kind of block periodization. And it's classic that. GA guys do a hypertrophy block six weeks, a strength block six weeks, a power, and then don't even do weights and in-season kind of thing. Where that block periodization, if you're a Russian athlete back in the 50s getting ready for Olympics, that kind of works well because those athletes are on a lot of drugs, don't really train, and their whole lives are controlled. Where GA athletes have a lot more things going on, so you have to kind of approach it in a different way. But to get back into it, as you said, we don't need to train like a powerlifter. Uh, we don't need to train like a bodybuilder. Yes, some hypertrophy stuff is going to be important. The average um, inter-county player at the elite level is somewhere in the region of 80 to 84 kilos at around 14 to 15% body fat. So, you know, generally, but those guys are an average of, oh, unfortunately for me, I'm at, I stand at 171 centimeters. The average inter-county player is about 180 to 184 centimeters or a bit taller. So if you're a bit shorter than that, look, you're probably not going to be 80 to 84 kilos, probably in the mid to high 70s or whatever, and vice versa if you're a bit taller. But that's where the average elite level GA player is going to stand. So 
you can kind of guess for that whether you need to put on a bit of muscle or whether you need to not. Now, obviously, there's exceptions to rule. There's some skinny lads who are great footballers, and they're ones that come down to skill and other things. But that, on average, that's where you're going to fall. If we look, then, what you should be looking at is, and you said this specificity. Specificity is not about mimicking the game in the gym room. That's, that's ridiculous. It's not about just... What movements do we do on the pitch? Let's load them up in the gym and do them. That's that's horseshit. Like specificity without going too complicated. It's about looking at the energy demands of the sport, the energy systems utilized, the joint angles, the contraction types, all this kind of stuff, and the velocities and all this kind of stuff. So we won't get into that because it's not the remit. But if we look at, first of all, from an injury I won't say pre- prevention because I don't like the term injury prevention because yeah. you can't prevent it. All we can do is identify injury risks and modify them. Um, we can do the best program in the world and the guy will still get injured. Just injuries that complex, it can happen. Um, but if we look at the kind of epidemiological stuff within GA, and surprisingly, like I've, I think coming out in the next couple of weeks, which made me actually go and review every single research paper I've ever done in GA, um, which was only in around 140 papers, so it wasn't too bad. But... The majority of research in GA has actually been done in injury and injury risk, and very little done in S&C. But probably the best research came out last year from uh, Group Row, and they looked at 15 different Division One teams from 2005, 2008 to 2015, and they ended up, I think, about 35 different data sets, so 35 seasons, you could say, of uh, data sets of teams. And what we see is, non-surprisingly, 80 to 85 percent of injuries are lower body so guys that spend all day every day working on their shoulders and rotator cuffs like that's great uh, you know it'll help with shoulder pain or whatever if that's an issue but most of the shoulder injuries we see we can't really prevent them they happen from a lad just crashing into you or you are in the compromised position catching a slit above your head and someone comes in and jerks your arm back like, if your arm's extended like that and it gets hit the wrong way, it doesn't matter how strong your tail cuffs are, your shoulder will pop. So, let's not waste our time there. So, 85 percent of the injuries happen in the lower limb. Of those, we know that during a match, you're at much higher injury risk, about four times higher injury risk than in a game or in training. What's interesting, most guys say, oh, look, you need to be big and strong so that you can take a hit and not get injured. 81% of injuries, of these lower body injuries, happen as non-contact injuries. So we know that pretty much most injuries, not because some lad's hitting into you, it happens when no one's around you, when you're running and cutting. And of that, the majority of those are hamstring strains and ankle sprains. And interesting enough, they happen in predominantly the third and fourth quarter of the match. So if we look at that, we can say that, okay, the majority of injuries in GA are lower body happen towards the end of the game with not true contact just while we're running and moving with no one around us and happen in the hamstrings and ankles so we can kind of safely say that most of the issues are down to how we perform and move and tolerate loads while fatigued so we need to be able to strengthen up both the ankles and hamstrings and as best we can make them resilient to injury and working under fatigue so how we do that from a strength and conditioning perspective we can do that both on the pitch and uh, in the gym and i suppose quickly on the pitch how we do that is make sure that we're exposing our athletes to some degree of cutting movements 
and high velocity runs while in this fatigue state. So we know that athletes who regularly are exposed to high velocity sprints, and so guys who actually run fast and hit their top end speed at least once or twice during the season are much more or less likely to um, sustain hamstring injuries. And so that's what we need. We need to make sure that guys actually train at top end speed from time to time and are exposed because uh, you need to expose the hamstrings to um, these high velocities. And why one thing that you could see anecdotally, guys in training hold back. They don't push themselves to the absolute max. So that's why when they're fatigued in the match and they're chasing down a guy with the ball who's fucking turned them on the 45 and heading for goal, they actually do push themselves to that limits. They get to velocities the hamstrings haven't hit and trained them before and the hamstrings just give way then under this new demand that they haven't hit in a fatigue state. So that's where we see the hamstrings train. So introducing some of that. And then also, I do it in the cool down with my players, introducing cutting and lateral movements. We don't need to go crazy with them, but we're just exposing the tendons, ligaments, and the joints to these um, different force vectors. We're cutting uh, horizontally, changing direction in the cool down because the muscles are fatigued. We only need to introduce them a little bit now and often. Are uh, small small amounts and often that the um, all the joints get exposed to these demands and the tissues then can adapt towards that. So that's how I then um, condition or try my best for injury risk modification on the pitch is exposing guys to high velocity runs and also different movement patterns while in a somewhat fatigued state. In the gym, it's going to be your standard just getting fucking strong and getting strong in the end ranges and. Um, like that, most of your hamstring tears are going to come at that distal end of the hamstring. And Gary, you can talk more since you know the pathology of injury much better than I would. But a lot of what we see happens in the in that bifem and happens towards kind of the distal portion where guys just become that overstretched when they're sprinting at these top speeds. So getting if you get guys really strong at um, RDLs, so kind of train that lengthened range and then maybe something like seated hamstring curls or something like that that forces to get into that shortened range and then so and then your kind of deadlifts are going to be training that mid-range anywhere whatever it may be so you're getting the hamstrings really strong in those ranges and um, strength build it up and then once you get to a decent level of strength what i would start then and uh, seems to be beneficial both anecdotally and in some degree of the research is working on um kind of high velocity hamstring eccentric works so kind of dropping into a split squat position or whatever it may be that ability to land and kind of while the hamstring is um eccentrically lengthening at a high velocity to kind of stop suddenly within that exposing the hamstrings to a little bit of that kind of stuff landing and uh, high velocity movements does seem to be kind of the best ways to go at protecting the hamstring from injury and again i'd love to hear your kind of thoughts on that approach gary yeah, no, I think that's I think that's all great. Like, I think one of the the key ways that you could summarize pretty much every everything that you're saying is like, all right, we look at the sport, we look at the tasks that you need to do, and then you try and prepare yourself for for what you need to do. <laughs> like that, like that is. That, and I think people miss that sometimes. Like, like I know you've said this before, but the amount of people that message me and say how do I get faster? And I'm like, have you practiced sprints? And they're like, no, I'm like, okay, this is weird, you know, but, but it's like what we said at the back, at the start of the session, or at the start of the podcast, where people are so focused on what they can do in the gym to make something better that they don't actually practice the something, 
you know and I, yeah. and I think i think that's interesting what you said about them adding in the lateral movements toward the end when people are already fatigued um because i do think that that is something that gets missed out on in a lot of strength training discussions is that you need to actually get people into the sort of situations that they're going to be in um when they're on the pitch and like you said the last the last quarter or two quarters of the game is when you're seeing those injuries take place and that's where it becomes really interesting in terms of all of these different factors coming together because i think sometimes people look at strength training and they think okay it's purely the strength that leads to injury risk reduction but it's also the fact that like if you have better aerobic fitness and you are generally more efficient in everything that you do on the pitch when you get to that end state and you're more fatigued towards the end of the game you're not going to be as fatigued as the guy who has low aerobic fitness yeah. So hence the demands there in terms of strength are actually totally different already. So that's why all of these things like come together and, and are important because I find people get so reductionist in their approach on this stuff that they start to look purely at like the biomechanics of the injury mechanism. Yeah. And that's something that always happens in physiotherapy research and it annoys me so much because they look at like the mechanism of injury. All right, how did this person get injured? And then all they do is like, right we need to work on fixing you get like you're you're getting into val valgus so we need to fix you and stop you from getting into knee valgus let's say whereas very often like getting into valgus might simply be something that happens in a fatigue state because it's sort of the compensation as a result of not being able to tolerate the yeah. forces you're being exposed to and i just think that that stuff is missed so often in favor of reductionist things like uh like i'm gonna have orthotics so to fix my flat feet so that i don't go into valgus it's like you're missing the bigger picture yeah. and all of this is about essentially preparing yourself to be just very very resilient to all the different things you're going to be exposed to um and yeah in terms of the strength training i would totally agree um both in terms of like the principles and even the exercise selection you've laid out like when you look into the research especially on hamstrings you know you can really start to get real complicated in terms of like some exercises will work the semitendinosus and semimembranosus more and some of them will work the biceps femoris more and you're kind of just hoping that these emg studies ca carry over to real life practice and like it comes down to very simple stuff a lot of the time where all right have you got a have you got an ex have you got exercises that are challenging the hamstring in most of the range of motion that it's, that it's going to be taken into and in the specific contraction modes that are likely to lead to injury and once you kind of cover that, it's like, yep, you've you've got it, you know, because once you've got a stronger hamstring, it yeah. is more tolerant of loading, you know. Yeah. And like you said, I like, I really like that idea of having a, to absorb force at higher velocities then, or having to produce force at higher velocities, um, because you know, if you are sprinting and you're you're in that you're in that push off phase and you're you know maximally pushing off, like you better hope that you've prepared for that in some yeah. way um, in your training in the past. And like you alluded to as well. It's not just about doing exercises that are specific. It's also about getting to that top end speed in training. Yeah. Because um, you certainly don't want to be running at 100% for the first time on the field, especially when you're likely to be more fatigued than you normally would be in training. So, so yeah, I would definitely agree with all that. So feel free to... Yeah. To As you said, that's, that's one area where, like, the S&C stuff doesn't have to be overly complicated. As you said, look, what kind of... what ranges do we need to work the muscles in, what contraction type, that's great, but like for most people listening, a decent enough program, if you even just go back to general movement planes, if you have a squat pattern, a hip hinge pattern, kind of vertical, horizontal push-pull, 
kind of thing. If you're covering all those with a bit of lateral movement, most guys can design a run-the-mill S&C program that's not too bad for themselves. Um, but as you said, a lot of guys do neglect the high-velocity stuff. And when we look at transfer to sport, which again is another area is often misunderstood, a lot of guys don't do enough high-velocity movements in the gym. And it's because it's probably not as easy to track and quantify like it's it's nice it's nice and easy for us as coaches to say look you're ten kilos quicker on the or ten kilos um, stronger on the squat and all these and yeah. it's like making or hitting big numbers where if you're not using accelerometer or some sort of things like that and just have a guy like some guys I program is just counter movement jumps just and it's like you don't feel like you're working that hard but I just want you to each week focus on jumping stronger more powerfully it's just getting your uh, muscles doing high velocity kind of work so a lot of guys need to start putting in a bit more high velocity a bit kind of jumping bounding um, and like that hip flexor stuff at high velocity and um, hamstring stuff at high velocity um, so yeah that's the kind of gym work but as you said guys need to be doing it on the pitch then as well and it's not that much of a modification I think if a standard S&C guy if he's doing a cool down with his um, team this is something that the managers always want you to do a cool down and it's fine. It's, they usually just want you to stretch. But guys usually start off with having guys on the 21 and the end line, okay, jog between them. Jog, jogs nice and slowly between them, cooling down, breathing in. Now, one simple thing that you can change there where you have guys jogging, they're hitting the line, they're just turning around. Why not have the guys, when they jog, every time they hit the line, they plant with, say, the front foot. They plant, stick, push off. So now they're kind of, that's, you're doing the exact same movement. It's not adding any extra time. But now they're planting on each line, switching what foot, what foot to plant with each line. Maybe you're doing planting in a lunge position kind of stance, uh, going this way. Next time up, let's do a lateral movement. You're still taking up the same amount of time, but you're doing this stop-start where you're forcing kind of these higher-velocity, eccentric load kind of things, just exposing the muscles and tissues to some of these loads and demands while fatigued. So they're simple little things. Um, as a coach, myself, with teams, your, your time is often limited as an SSC coach with your teams on, the, on game day, especially in the warm-up and cool-down. You might have 10 minutes of a warm-up and 5 minutes of cool-down. So use that time efficiently. And even in your training sessions, even if you've only 15 minutes on a pitch session with your guys, this is where you should be using your warm-up to work mechanics with the guys. When you're doing high knees coming out, Make sure they're pulling those toes up to get into that kind of dorsiflex position to get that stiff ankle complex and all this kind of stuff that'll help in your sprinting technique. So use your time efficiently when it comes there. And then, as I said, you need to be hitting these high velocities on the pitch. And yeah, I've got these me, how do I get faster? And I'm like, you need to fucking sprint. It's like, this idea is like, oh, what gym work do I need to do? Do I need to get my glutes to fire? No, you fucking don't. That's <laughs> like this idea of, and we all know who I'm talking about. It's like, oh, you, how do you get faster? You get your glutes to fire. I don't know what that means. I honestly don't know like what a muscle firing means. I assume he means contract. And if your glutes aren't contracting already, I I don't know what the issue is. I, like, I, always, just, I always just picture someone folded over trying yeah. to walk down the street. Yeah, <laughs> like your, hands on the floor. Yeah. your glutes are firing, believe me. Your glutes are contracting. That's not the issue. Um, but and it's, it's funny, like, where there's kind of this dissonance with people's thoughts. If I said to someone, okay, what's the best way to get faster? They'll tell me, uh, squat, you need to be squat. Okay, what's the best way to improve your squat? And if I said to them, is it sprinted on the pitch? And they're like, 
no, that's ridiculous. You need to practice the water. <laughs> it's, it's like a boxer. If a, a boxer comes to me, I'm like, okay, we need to work on, I want to work on knockout power, uh, getting a better right hook. It's like, grand, do single arm incline dumbbell presses. That'll help. Like, I could do that, or I could work on his technique and actually get him more proficient as a boxer and work on his body mechanics. That's going to give him the knockout power. So this idea that, yes, the, all these other things play a role, but unless you're practicing sprinting, and most guys, when you actually tell them sprint, they never actually get up to f- full sprint. And it's one of my cues when I work guys, like, I want you to actually focus on running as fast as you possibly can. I was like, just as fast. And it's funny, guys have never actually done this, which it's, it's, and it's because of the way we tend to train sprints in, like, when I do um, sprints with guys on the pitch, if it's, say, not a speed session as such, it's more of a condition and energy development, energy system development system. I never tell them how many sprints you're going to be doing. I'll be like, line up there, maximally sprint, grand, now you're 20 seconds rest, or whatever it may be. Do it again. When you tell guys, we're doing a set of 10, Guys are like, fuck that, I'm not going maximal on sure. number one of nine more to do afterwards. And they might push hard then on nine and ten when they might have had ten seconds rest between each sprint. So now on nine and ten, when they are pushing as hard as they can, they're fatigued and they can't reach the velocities of maximal sprinting. So even though they might push 100% on sprint nine and ten, they can't get to the same velocities that they would get to in a fresh state when trying to run maximally. So... Most guys, when you bring them through a warm-up and you tell them, right now, run as fast as you possibly can to the 45, guys will have hamstring doms for a day or two, and they're like, and their hips will be all, and they'll be like, what's going on? It's like, you've never actually sprinted as hard as you can before. This is, like, and that's the sad reality, is all the work we do, and guys aren't doing the fundamental things right. It's like, if I got you to do nine sprints a week, maximally, that's going to probably have a lot more effect on your sprint speed than... Uh, the four or five hours you want to spend at the gym trying to get your fucking glutes to fire. <laughs> I don't disagree. <laughs> but yeah, then in terms of like, like one, one of the things I wanted to bring up just in relation to that as well, because um, it's a, a common question that I get about like hit hit training. Like I think a lot, what a lot of people see, a lot of GA players see is that, all right, you got to do these hit, hit workouts, high intensity interval training. But what they end up doing is kind of like, like your average gym bunny where you do like 30 seconds on 60 seconds or, or 30 seconds on 30 seconds off or even 60 seconds on 30 seconds off mm. um like from my perspective i don't know if you'll agree i think you probably will like if we were to do sprints and our goal was purely top end speed as opposed to energy system development okay. we would probably want a couple of minutes between those max effort sp- sprints would you agree with that yeah i generally agree somewhere Generally, like that, most guys are doing hit and um, aren't actually doing hit. They don't yeah. understand the concept. But if our goal is just to do top end speed and improve our ability to move at top speed, yeah. then that okay. comes out to quality of each sprint. You want each sprint to be the best quality. Now, if I'm fatigued, I can't reach the same speed. So if I'm trying to continually push the barrier, say I'm sprinting now at whatever it may be, top end speed at 7 meters per second, um, for a good level GA player could be. Now, if I want to push at 7.1, 7.2 metres a second, I'm going to have to be fully rested and able... If I'm a bit fatigued, I might hit 7 metres a second in the first sprint, then 6.8, then 6.6, and soon soon afterwards, I'm fatigued and not moving that well. Or if I give myself enough rest, I can hit 7. I can hit 7 again. I can hit 7 again. So, therefore, 
you're looking at hitting the same quality and the repeated quality again and again in your sprints. And that is where manipulating the worst work, work to rest ratios comes in. If if we're talking about that developing that top end speed, I generally work somewhere in the space of ten to one um, work to rest ratio. So if I've got doing a fourteen meter sprint from start to over the fourteen, they could take less than three seconds to do that. I could push them to ten to fifteen twenty to one work to rest ratio. I could have you sprint end line to fourteen, grand, let's take a whole minute. Let's rest mm. up. Let's do it again. Okay, let's go end line to 21. Let's take 90 to 120 seconds between this. End line to 45. Let's take three, four minutes between these if needs be. Um, whatever it takes, so you can hit the same quality again and again for me. So when it comes to like that, the conditioning, that's where you have to make the differentiation. What are you yes. looking for? Are you looking for energy system development? Or are you looking for um, a, a certain attribute and if that attribute is top end sprint speed then you're going to want those huge work to rest ratio which for most athletes feels weird if i tell you okay sprint hard to the 14 grand take a minute now and rest guys are standing around like i feel good i want to go because we have this idea that i need to be breathing heavy i need to be yeah the perceived effort has to be very high if i'm going to improve there's this idea that you don't um kind of progress unless you're in some degree of pain which Look, if we were looking at energy system development, suffering is probably going to be a big part of that, your ability to endure some suffering there. Yeah. But if we're looking at just a single attribute like top end speed, that's something different. That's you after a speed session, you should feel fairly refreshed and good to go. Like you shouldn't feel highly fatigued after a speed session. If we move then into the energy development kind of side of things that you're talking about, we then come to these work to rest ratios, which most people are uh, familiar with that the common, as you say, 30 on, 30 off, this one-to-one work-rest ratio. I think a broad way of looking at this energy development and energy system development is, look, we want to tax both aerobic and anaerobic system. Now, if you look at it from a simplistic way, we're going to be wanting to do one of two things, and this is how you decide what work-to-rest ratio you use, because there's so many different, these are all just methods, you can use so many, you can use 30 seconds on, 30 off, 10 on, 10 off, 20 on, 5 off, whatever it may be, you know, your work-to-rest ratio can be 1 to 1, 1 to 4, on say 4 to 1, and reverse it the other way, whatever it may be, but you're going to fall into one of two main outcome goals, you're either going to be one, wanting to enhance the athlete's ability to work and produce work under extreme fatigue, so this is where you're going to be using these 20 seconds on max effort, 10 seconds off. And say for, if we just look at sprint distance, the, the distance some guy will cover in this, if we're doing out and back to the cones, which may be, they could in 20 seconds cover 100 meters distance in that first 20 seconds. We give them 10 off, they'll hit 90, then 70. And then within four to five reps, they're suffering and they might be hitting 50, 40 meters. Now, that's what we're aiming to do there is enhance the athlete's ability to just produce work under extreme fatigue conditions. That's fine. That's where you're going to work with your short work-to-rest ratios, where it's a lot of work for very little rest. So that's what we can do there. Now, on the other end of that spectrum, what we can, if we're not looking to do that, what we can be looking to is looking to improve the ability of the athlete to get a certain amount of work done in about and repeat that effort again and again where we may look to like that for doing the 150s give an athlete 30 seconds 
So if we do the 150, that people often use as a, a test, a 150 repeated sprint test. So out to the cone, back to the end line for, for, for five different cones. So if we give a guy 30 seconds, great, they get through 140 meters. Then we give him, say, a work to rest ratio of one to four. We allow him to rest for two minutes, do it again. He may hit 140 again. He may hit, and we keep this going, he may hit 140 again and again for five, six repeat bouts. So that's where we're looking for their ability. And this is where, when we're looking that to do that, then in a couple of weeks time, they're able to get 145 meters, then 150 covered for five, six, seven bouts in a row. So that's where we're looking to improve the quality of the work to do per bout. And we allow a long rest to do that and the repeatability. Where on the other side, we can do the same 150, 30 seconds on, 20 seconds rest. And this is not about improving the quality per se of each bout. It's about getting the athlete to work um, under extreme fatigue. So that's where kind of, and that's where you as the coaches come down to like, what is the outcome I desire? Do I want to improve their ability to do a certain amount of work within a certain time period? And, um, or do I want to work them getting a proficient of working under extreme fatigue? And again, these are not mutually exclusive. It's not like wanting, there's a gray area in the middle there. There's always a gray area where you're working attributes of both. And that's where you kind of manipulate depending on what type of energy the system development you're aiming for. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think, I think that was fantastic because that's something I have, I feel like I have a lot of discussions about and the way I end up bringing it back is like, all right, let's let's say you were in the gym, you were doing deadlifts, all right? You're going you're doing sets of 1 to 3. It's like you go and do that with 30 seconds rest, see how many sets you get. It's like, you know, it's not happening and it's very it's very similar like in terms of energy system demands to what you're looking at in terms of a max effort sprint. Like there's only so many you're going to be able to do with a short rest mm -hmm. period. You need to be able to give yourself that rest period. So it is about kind of sorting out what your goal is and I think that's the thing a lot of people have difficulty with as individual GAA athletes because let's say you are involved in a club that maybe you know they don't have the best strength conditioning or they don't have a strength conditioning coach um, and you're trying to figure all this stuff out for yourself you're just overwhelmed with options because you've got you know you, you follow a few bodybuilding people and they give you all this advice and you follow a few powerlifters and then you follow a few like speed coaches who are specific to sprinting and then you follow like people who do cardio for fat loss and you've got all this different this different information where you're like all right how do i actually tie this back to my sport and the needs of my sport and i suppose that's where you do need to run a a needs analysis on yeah. yourself um which can be difficult to do without that sort of external objective eye or some sort of of testing you know and even when it comes to to testing it's it's not like it's not like it's always very clear-cut like like no. the client the client i was talking about earlier who is very strong you know he did a he did a um a vertical jump and basically the vertical jump was measured as like a little bit suboptimal and he was told by the guy who did the testing that uh, in order to do better here what you need to do is focus on getting stronger and i'm like <laughs> I'm like, all right, man. You already he squats. He squats over double body weight for sets of five. Like strong I'm like, I'm strong like you know, you, yeah. you are, with like control deep. I'm like, you are stronger than than most guys who are your age training for power thing. Whatever about you. Yeah. So and and so that's why that needs analysis is difficult because you might take someone like that and then it's like actually you haven't practiced jumping enough. 
we might yeah. need to practice this specific test a little bit more if you were to do better on that test. Well, and that's, and that's a, it's a key thing when it comes to testing. This idea, and it's it's everything, people just look at things too reductionist and too mm. within context. Like that, if that if that actually, Duran, about if we brought him away for a few minutes, like practice actually jumping, practice jumping, let's go back and do the test. Oftentimes we'll see just through repeated bout effects way they got better and that's why I have a big problem with FMS it's a heap of shite basically it <laughs> um, it's, it's complete dog shit and I'll say it and uh, prove me wrong I want to set one of those desks like FMS is dog shit prove me wrong <laughs> uh, I can and I've, I've heard quite a reputable um, group within Ireland to do FMS testing they have told their people their instructors like don't cue the athletes do it just let them do it but don't cue them I can get someone to score a fucking one on the overhead squat on the FMS. I'll cue them and they'll score a three. So, yeah. you know what I mean? Is there any reliability there? It's like, oh, they scored one, therefore this is wrong, they're at this injury risk. First of all, it doesn't predict injury risk at all. It's not very good at it at all. And then secondly, I can modify that within 10 seconds. Where a lot of time, guys do an FMS test, come back eight weeks later, and the coach who doesn't want to look shit, actually cues the guy on the second one. It's like, this time just think about actually uh, reaching up with your shoulders open up. Now the score a three. You can go back to the head coach. Like, look how great I am. Now the guy's, uh, our FMS has gone up. It's like, that's great, but they're still not winning on the pitch. They're not performing better on the pitch. Who gives a shit? And where that isolation can be seen, and I suppose that's something I should say, like, the biggest test is how guys perform on the pitch. Let's not ever forget that. Your key performance indicator isn't their sprint speed between, as a coach, it's not how well they perform their 1RM. It's not how well they just get through speed gates. It's how well <coughs> excuse me, they move and perform on the pitch is the determined factor whether the training as a whole is accomplishing its goal. Um, if what you're doing in the gym and in training isn't leading to better performance on the pitch, then you're doing something wrong. But where the problem, let's say that isolated example you have. We get someone into an unnatural position, stand shoulder weight apart, okay, squat down, jump as high as you can. Great, oh, you're suboptimal. And then guys, automatically mean, that means as a full back, you're not going to be able to feel the ball as well. You're not going to be able to get up over your man, break the ball. And I'm like, that is completely ridiculous because we have guys that don't perform well on the test. But guess this, if, say that guy, he doesn't jump that well high vertically. But if he's able to read the flight path of a ball better, he's able to put himself into a better starting position because now he's not jumping from the standing position. He's actually a slight jog in, allowing him to plant. And then he jumps at the right time. He might be able to jump as high as the other guy, but if he's able to time his jump better, he's the one winning that ball. So this idea of just let's test this single variable out of context and extrapolate that towards field performance you can't do that like that. Just because someone doesn't jump as high doesn't mean they feel the ball any worse than anyone else. And again, it's a totally different even podcast. Agility testing is um, bullshit as well. Um, we Most guys that test agility, they're testing um, multidirectional speed. That's very different from agility. Um, but again, that's a complete rabbit hole we could go down into. But, you know, these guys who don't perform well on tests, and we see it again and again in practice, Guys who aren't the fastest sprinters in the sprint tests, they're not the most agile in the agility tests, they don't jump as high, they're not the strongest, put them on the pitch, they fucking clean up. It's because they have the more skillful, they can read the ball, they can make compensations on the pitch. So again, fitness testing and these testing data, it's great, but you have to look at the picture of the overall athlete. Don't label athletes into boxes, 
just because they don't perform well on certain tests. For sure, and like I think we could probably talk about that agility agility thing another time because I think that that's something I found really interesting because um, I think it was you that initially put that on my radar pretty much about how how poor agility training actually often is. So maybe another time because I think that's a deep rabbit hole as well. But actually, I suppose before we move on, you said about this needs analysis, and yeah, as a coach, it's difficult enough to do a needs analysis. Like you can look at. The, it needs an answer should always come from the game. Observe yeah. the game. Like, if we're going to be evidence-based, the biggest evidence you can see is in front of you. Go on, like, if you, and this is, guys that may never coach in GA, you're probably better off because you can go in without biases. Like, I've gone in coaching a lot in rugby now without ever formally playing rugby myself. But that means I don't have these old-school mentalities. I can come in, observe with fresh eyes, and come to my own conclusions. So go watch a game, and when we watch watch a few games, watch what the best teams do. Okay, these are what the profiles of the best guys are. This is what they're doing right. Then look into the research. Is there any research in the area? Okay, we can get research to kind of compare to what I've observed, see any similarities. When you look at the research in the game and the game demands, in the last two or three years a lot have come out about it. Because most of the game demand research was in the early 2000s. I think we can agree the demands of the sport have moved on quite a lot in GA. Um, since then so if we look for the last couple of years we know that the average player is covering eight to ten kilometers per match so we know there is a huge aerobic demand there you know that muscular endurance aerobic demand is there we know guys could be doing anywhere from up to four four hundred accelerations during the game now most of those accelerations are your player takes a step or two or you push off for half a meter a meter so it's not like you're sprinting five yards and we know that guys are doing a total of about 40 to 45 sprints per game so guys getting up over that um what's classed as 17 kilometers an hour or and into that high high speed running which over 22 kilometers an hour guys on average may be getting up to 40 to 45 of those per game so from there we can start to say okay they're the energy demands that are placed on us and as you a player a very basic needs analysis you can do with yourself if you're honest is like where do i get tired in the game do I get tired in the last 15 minutes? Not so much because I'm sprinting. And just the last 15 minutes, I tend to just feel heavy and my heart rate is a bit up and I'm breathing. Then probably just your overall aerobic capacity is uh, poor. It's your VO2 max, whatever you want to call it. Because we know the top guys have VO2 max is up around 60, which is quite good. Um, so the top guys are aerobically quite fit. Um, so if you're someone that's just in the last 15 minutes, you know, you're feeling heavy, feeling sluggish, probably need to work on your aerobic capacity so that could be looking at you know these high intensity intervals that are three four five minutes in length uh, with five minutes active recovery pushing hard for those um, you can use like there was a study last year from um i know brendan egan was one of the other authors on it i can't remember could have been it was kelly but i can't remember if it was kelly of ait i think it was um he plays with sligo as well his lecture on ait but he did a research study last year where they compared sprint interval training with traditional endurance training to improve aerobic um, uh, performance of VO2 max. So what the guys doing endurance training, they were doing the traditional stuff. They were doing 50 minutes at 75% VO2 max. So decent enough, tough enough running uh, for 50 minutes. Now the sprint interval guys did much less um, thing, much less training. But the difference is the sprint interval training group did fucking torturous work. They set up cones every five minutes 
And what the training was, it was three rounds with five minutes between rounds. Each round was three sprints, each, each sprint 110 metres. So out to the five metre, back in 10, back in 20, as hard as you can possibly go for 110 metres. So about 25 to 30 seconds match running with 20 seconds break between go again, do it again. Now, and these guys were pushing to their absolute limits. Do three of those, rest five minutes, do that two times again. If anyone has ever trained that way properly, and I'm not on about just run to the cone back in at 90% effort, at 100% effort, if you're doing that, you are smoked, you are thrown up, your your um, inspiratory muscles, your ribs are spasming because the intercostals can't handle that kind of stuff because um, you've never you've never actually breeded that hard or bred that hard, I should say. So, And they found that, yeah, this high-intensity stuff leads to the same increase in VO2 max. You get the same thing. So you can use several different methods to increase your aerobic capacity. Now, there's a big difference in terms of the fatigue demands and that kind of stuff and just having the balls to push yourself for yeah. nine maximum sprints like that. Most guys will cave and most guys will do it once. And then the week after, oh, I think I'll go for the 15-minute run this week because they just don't want to go through that pain barrier again. So if that's the case, last 15 minutes, you're feeling heavy, great. You need to work on your aerobic capacity. If it's a case then that when you are have to do or you do sprints, every time you do a sprint, oh, you're breathing heavy after that sprint and it takes you a good while to recover or you're not feeling great, well, then maybe you need to work, as I said, this... 10 seconds on, a minute off, 10, 20 seconds on, a minute off, whatever it may be, work on the quality of work you can get done in that sprint. If it's a case when, you know, and a lot of guys, you sprint hard, and then the, the, change, the, the, the play, direction of play changes, you have to turn and go again, and then you do two or three sprints back to back. If that's what tends to really kill you on the pitch, then, you know, look, it's you need to learn to work under extreme fatigue again and again. So there are simple things. If you're honest with yourself, where do I fall down most of my game? identify that okay that's probably a good idea that i work on a method that helps me improve my ability on there and then the and then it's simple as okay train it for a month or two are you performing better on the pitch in that quality no change something if yeah i've improved great now where's your weaknesses let's find the next weakness let's work on that work on that so that's a basic needs analysis anyone can do without having to have an understanding of um evidence game that the physiological things just simply where do i fall down in my game it's more than likely guys one of those three areas and then uh what can i do to work on that yeah but like as you can see as well like there is no easy way out like i remember reading that study re- reading that study last year and on paper like when you look at it you're like oh it actually doesn't seem too bad like that's not too bad for <laughs> for for that little training to get that increase in vo2 max i was like that's not bad but then if you actually try it, it's like, oh, oh Jesus Christ, I'm doing um, wrong. Yeah, you, you would. And most guys will take that 50 minutes over it. I know I have in the past. I, I, I went through, when I was in my peak athletic performance, I should call it, in terms of aerobic plan, I used to train the 150 as um, a training exercise, do the 150 sprint repeat test, so six of those bouts. And I used to do that once a week as training. And you would you come up with every excuse in the books like no i'm a bit fatigued today maybe i'll just go for the long run because it's just so fucking painful you do not want to go through that barrier it's like guys doing assault bike sprints or something interval training like it's people just don't understand that 
oh, your ribs are spasming because you can't breathe properly. You're also trying to hold down sick. You can't drink water because that's just what you want to drink water because your mouth's dry. But if you drink it, you're going to spew it back up. It's it's absolute agony. Um, and most guys just, yeah, you can get great results, but prepare to pay for them. Yeah, and I think as well, like, when you do look at that stuff and you do see the outcomes, like, some guys are just ridiculously hard-headed and will fucking throw themselves into that. And I think you also have to, like, we also have to acknowledge that, like, it's it's not just a case of having the balls. It's also about, you know, there is a lot of fatigue that comes with this. And you, yes. can't, you can't just out of nowhere start doing that no. level of max effort training like three times a week or whatever it's like that's that's, that's awesome be, for an injury yeah it's too it's too much for you at that point so like that's one of the things that i will emphasize in anyone that i coach for sport in terms of their conditioning training like regardless of, of where they are like if i'm giving them guidance i will have a variety um yeah. in terms of like if we're trying to let's say increase someone's aerobic capacity there might be some of that stuff like the assault bike sprints but god i'm going to int- introduce that like close to max effort on week one once a week and then like if i'm going to increase it like i'm not going to be be increasing very quickly and the other sessions are going to be that kind of more moderate continuous type of work that you're going to be doing um because i do think you do need that variety and as well like on that note like in terms of the assault bike you know because like a lot of people what a lot of people will do is they'll start doing conditioning work but they'll move too far away from yes. the pitch set, the pitch setting yes. in my in my eyes because that's what I tend to see is that especially when people start doing hit, they're not doing those sprints on the pitch. They're going doing the, the, the spin bike, the spin bike, or the roar or whatever. And it's like, yeah, that might be preparing you your energy your energy systems, but yeah. the specificity is a little bit too far away for you to be able to then go and do your max effort sprint you know, on the pitch, because as we've said, you know, firstly, game context matters. And secondly, like your hamstrings and all the muscles involved need to be able to absorb and produce force at those specific joint angles. And yeah, it's, it's, it's just a, a different, a different ball game. hundred percent. Um, and where, where you see that is exactly that guys are like, okay, hit training and to get on the road, to get on the bike, assault bike, which like, there's no issue. Sometimes, you know, it's great. We'll just take the load and off the giants, allow you to do yeah. energy sit development, not as much fatigue built up. But it's when you do too much this, like, and then guys go back to running and like that, maybe they haven't hit the high velocities, they haven't exposed the giant angles to get injured or whatever, maybe just to not being exposed to the demands. But also most guys go back running and their lower back starts tightening up and all this kind of stuff. It's like, why? It's like, well, you haven't exposed your body to the loading pattern in quite a while. You know what I mean? You just, it's not that you're injured or such. It's just your body's not used to it. So now you're putting a huge demand where it's not used to. So, and that's, like when people i have no issue in getting a guy to go out and do a five or a 10k jog um i've the the current planes here by me it's one of the best places where it's one of the best torture camps within ireland i i, I do believe um to bring guys um but like there's not wrong getting a player at the appropriate time to go out and do a 30 40 50 minute nice steady state jog put in the headphones and get out and guys be like oh well they don't like they don't do this on the pitch like again that's specificity gone mad it's like what do they do on the pitch i know guys the average heart rate for most players on the pitch is um peak values are about 190 195 with average heart rate across 60 minutes being 160 i know that guys are going to cover eight to ten kilometers in a match guys are going to be on their feet moving around for two bouts of 30 minutes 30 to 33 minutes so is it and you're telling me it's not specific for me to get someone to go out and work at 150, 160 heart rate 
for 30 minutes, maybe take a little break, do another 30 minutes or for 40 minutes, you know, at a nice steady state intensity. It's like I'm preparing the aerobic systems for the average demand that's going to be across it. I'm preparing the giants for the distance you're going to be covering within the match, essentially. Um, and then I'm not building up maybe as much fatigue as I would with other modalities that it might be nice for my player just to go out and not feel fucking smoked and go through pain, go out and just build up this bit of muscular endurance and load and through the joints and like that my player all of a sudden when they were getting their back tightening up 30 to 40 minutes into the game, now it's not because they're used to covering this loading over this kind of distance and that's what can happen a lot of time when guys go too much towards the bike and the rowers. We, the biggest thing anecdotally we hear is guys start running and their lower back just starts to seize because they're not used to the demands. Yeah, for sure. So, like, I think just remembering that idea of, like, that there's that pendulum of specificity, like, I think that's important. Like, you don't want to be trying to be too specific all of the time, but also the fact that as you get further away, like, you probably don't want to be doing too much of that stuff either. Like, regardless of whether we're talking about strength training, conditioning mm -hmm. training, agility, whatever it is. Um, so, like, so far, I think we've actually, like, I actually asked for questions on Instagram, and we've actually ended up covering pretty much all of them, to be honest, other than a couple. And the two the two glaringly obvious questions that have come from, like, three separate people for each of these types of questions um, are, are ones that I wanted to bring up anyway. The first one was in relation to hip flexor strains, hip flexor tendinopathy, hip flexor injuries, pain in general. Um, like, I think this is an easy an easy enough question to to answer because we, we actually discussed it in last week's podcast. So mm -hmm. these people are clearly only here for you, Dave, and they didn't listen. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah. But yeah. Like, I think I think one of the, like, I'll, I'll just add my bit and then you can. Yeah, like, on. You you're, you're, you're more probably um, adept with the injury stuff than me, but go on, go ahead. Yeah, like in terms of in terms of the hip flexors, like I just think people almost look at that movement of hip flexion and just ignore it as if it just doesn't exist. It's like it's like everything else. We we train we train hip extension with heavy weights. You know, we we people even train their biceps with heavy weights. But in yeah. terms of doing their hip flexors, it's like it's one of those muscles that's a bad muscle, and hence it, it shouldn't be strengthened. It should only be stre stretched. I always say that that there's. There's these idea, there's these bad muscles that we have in the body that just randomly get overactive, you know, like the upper traps and the 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 hip flexors. It's like they just get overactive, and we need to calm them down. Whereas the way I would look at like hip flexor pain or hip flexor tightness or whatever you might be experiencing, very often I view that as a an an end result as opposed to something that needs to be addressed itself. Because what's mm. end, what's ending up happening is like one of two things in my eyes. First of all, the hip the hip flexor muscles have never been trained by that person in their strength training program at yeah. all. They've never done that, so hence they don't have any baseline muscular strength um, abilities. And the other thing is something that we've already mentioned is that people are getting on the pitch, they're running at max speeds, which is requires very high hip flexion force as well, like not just hip extension. Um, and then what, end up, when, what ends up happening is they're just fatigued from that. And it's the first time that they've done those max effort sprints. So you've got a situation where you're not preparing for the task in either of the two main domains that you could potentially prepare for it from. So like very simply, like the solution to that in my eyes would be, first of all, start some way of strengthening your hip flexors. And the thing is, it's actually really simple because people people are generally pretty weak in the hip, in the hip flexor area. So if you even stand up, put a very like kettlebell around your foot yeah. and and lift up your leg like that'll be hard it's it's yeah. not easy and like that's a very easy way of getting things going 
And then in terms of your sprinting, like we've already talked about it, like you need to just practice actually exposing yourself to what you're going to be exposed to because otherwise you're going to have negative responses. Um, so yeah, just prepare the body. Would you agree there, Dave? Yeah, I'd agree with that. Like the hip flexor, people love fucking just shite talking about the hip flexor and you just need to foam roll it. Like yeah. that's all, all we hear. It's like, no. Like, and you hear crazy stuff. People are like, uh, I can't get into a deep squat because my hip flexor thing. Makes no sense. Like, if you think biomechanically, that makes absolutely no sense. No. Um, most of the time, it's weak. As you said, strengthen it. Not that hard to strengthen it. Um, and then get it used to high velocity stuff. If you're practicing your sprinting, you're introducing it there. Um, more kind of stuff. Once a bit conditioned, you can do. And it's not that difficult. You can do. Um, I've seen a nice method of getting a resistance band, putting it around the two safety pins in a squat rack, and literally driving that knee into that resistance yeah. band. That kind of that high velocity stuff and preparing it high velocity with that kind of eccentric um, demand placed on it then quickly then as well. That kind of um, pushing back into it. That can be a nice one to really work on both sprinting mechanics and getting that hip flexor a bit more resilient. So yeah, when it comes to that, and again, as you said, there's these muscles that people just have mad ideas. Like I I actually have a preparator to go out on Instagram just in my story, this kind of, it's a bit tongue in cheek, but People get doms in their chest, bicep, tricep, quads. First thing to think is, okay, yeah, I'm working hard in the gym. I've seen some gains. People get doms in any muscle within their back and think, fuck, I'm after fucking myself up here. That exercise was bad for my back. I'm never doing that again. <laughs> it's like... It's like your muscle, your back gets dumb. It's okay for your back to be sore and a bit stiff after training. You like you don't give up when your biceps and your pecs are a bit stiff. You actually, most people will aim for some degree of that uh, within their training. So that's one thing which is a bit mad. And then this is something that, again, I'd like to hear your probably opinion. It's just a rule of thumb I've come to kind of with myself when it comes to these muscle tightnesses as such. Like... Most things, if you strengthen it, like most guys with tight hips, get them strong in RDLs uh, and split squats and these kind of things, generally the hip tightness sorts itself out and the pain goes away. But what I generally see to work quite well is just a rule of thumb, and obviously there's probably some exceptions to it. Um, if you have a tight muscle, the go-to stretch that you're going to do for that muscle, if you look at what that stretch looks like, turn that into its closest neighbor and exercise. Yeah. And you're pretty much bang on there. Like most guys that get a tight hip flexor, what do they do? They go into a lunge position where they put their foot on a bench behind and stretch down and stretch that hip. I'm like, that looks very much like the bottom position of a split squat. As like of a rear foot elevated split squat. It's like turn that stretch into that exercise and do that instead of just stretching that for 10 seconds, do 10 reps. And more and more, when I think about these tight muscles that people have, it's like, okay, you have tightness at the end of the quad, you pull it up behind, or you sit down on the ground, and you sit back into this kind of stretch. Like, how about you rock back and forward a little bit, strengthen that end range, or do some sort of sissy squat variation, or something like that. That seems to sort out the tightness in most cases. So like these, the stretch you would do for something that's tight, if you turn it into its closest, nearest neighbor of an exercise, generally there's a room with Tom, I find it to work well for muscle tightnesses. Yeah, like I totally agree. Like I think that's that again is is one of those things in the hip flexor that that strength trainees, whatever about GA player, GA players, 
tend to to miss a lot. Like I've had so many people say that about the split squat. They'll be like, oh my God, like I'm feeling my hip flexor tightness is stopping you from doing hip flexors. I'm like, what are you feeling exactly? And they're like, they're like, oh yeah, I just feel that burning at the top of my thigh. I'm like, and is there something wrong with that muscle working yeah. or like, you know, that, that muscle is working just like any other yeah. muscle. Like, like it's supposed to be challenged in that exercise. It's the goal um, yeah. or one of the goals. And um, so that there's nothing wrong with that. Like I, like you said about the, the back, like this has been a, something I, I, I've talked about so much this week because we're working with a group of dancers on placement at the moment. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we've been trying to, to do with them is get them doing some resistance training again, along the lines of everything we've been talking about in terms of preparing the body a little bit better. And they, they come in and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, my, my bum and my quads were sore. And, you know, it was it was great, not too sore. But then they're like, but I have one concern. My back was also sore. Yeah. You know, my, my back was also sore. And it's like, all right, there, there's muscles there too. Um, but it's funny because, people, like, one of the girls was telling a story about how she went home to her mom or her grandmother or something. And she was saying how her back was hurting her. And everyone was like, oh, God, you know, don't do anything. Like, just sit yeah. down, like, take some rest. And it's like like this is a an almost like societal thing where people think yeah. the back is a, a is a, is more problematic than other areas and to be honest i i i wouldn't expect it to be such an issue um in athletic populations but it very clearly is so yeah. if anyone is listening like even when you're doing when you're out for a run if your back is sore after it doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong it's no it's, those those muscles are are working just like any other muscles would be to get fatigued and to get down is just the same as any other muscle group so this yeah, we just have this kind of, and again, you said it's societal. It's like, oh, your back pain, that must be bad. It's like, nah, it's grand. Like, to be honest, some people will say I'm flippant, like, but most guys, when I work with athletes and they come to me with little niggles or whatever, they're like, oh, this is a bit sore or whatever, like, grab me physios or whatever. Most of them, I'll chat to them for like 30 seconds, they'll tell me, and I'll be like, ah, you're grand, go on. Like, most of the time, where if you catastrophize that, like, oh, really? Okay, well, maybe today, no, we won't do that. It's like, most times, like, yeah, you're grand. You'll be fine. Go on. Yeah. It's like, it, it, uh, I was like, grand, let's see how you are under the bar. No, you're moving fine. That's sore. No, no, but just when I do this, there's a little change. Like, well, don't do that. It's yeah. <laughs> like, just to squat the way you're squatting, you're fine. It's like, yeah. <laughs> and that's where communication as a coach comes down huge. Where, and even, I suppose, my own knowledge, most injuries I pick up, or I won't call them injuries, niggles, I'm kind of like, ugh, Grant, it's sore today. I'll just do something a bit different. And then there to later, oh, yeah, it's gone, it's grand. Like, the body's fucking resilient for much more than what people give it credit for. Um, I, I'd actually say that more injuries, bar these obviously acute injuries that we can clearly see happen on a pitch, like someone tears a hamstring or someone rolls the ankle but these little niggles uh most of them only turn into injuries because people get into kind of fear avoidance cycle um and that's their own doing where people are like just accept that look you train hard some days you're going to get a little pain in your knee it happens it's just like does it mean anything not really just get on with it and forget about it if it's still there in a couple of weeks or a week later okay well then maybe we'll have an evaluation what's going on but if you fucking, especially this comes from the fighting background and working with fighters, no one goes into a fight um, 100%. There's always going to be a little niggle here or there. If every fighter pulled up because of every little niggle they had, none of them will ever go ahead. So look, at if you train hard and you abuse your body with all this training stimulus, you're going to get little pains sometimes. And most of the time it actually means fuck all. 
Yeah, I I couldn't possibly agree more. And like, that's a funny thing to say after like, you go through four years of physiotherapy education, you read all this research, and genuinely, like the end conclusion that you come to is almost like what your grandfather would tell you if you <laughs> literally like if yeah. you went into your grandfather and you were like, "Oh, my knee sore, grand," and he's like, "Oh yeah, she, it's fine. Get on with it. You'll be grand." Oh, <laughs> it's, it's like it's 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 a it's essentially that with maybe a little bit more empathy and compassion. Like that's that's, that's literally physiotherapy, like in an essence. Like obviously, like there's more to it, and like you said, you, you know, when you have a hamstring tear or you have like a, sp a sprained ankle, you rip open ligaments like that yeah. sort of stuff is a it's a different ball game but a lot of the things that people kind of go on about um are essentially the result of over treatment and over medicalization which is in my eyes the fault of the medical system physiotherapists chiropractors that have created an issue that we now have to reverse but that a lot of people don't want to reverse because clearly there's a lot of monetary gain in people thinking mm -hmm. that they have lots of problems um and the so, same yeah. can be said from S and C coaching because I see it too much in GA. Where, like, say for well, most people, in my opinion, as S and C coach for GA, don't utilize the warm up when the team. When I warm up my team, be it for a pit session or a match, I'm using that for a couple of reasons. Obviously, first of all, warm ups are usually often done quite poorly. A warm up is to the purpose of a warm up is to prepare the players for the upcoming demands of the game and to potentiate and facilitate improved performance afterwards. If your warm-up doesn't lead to improved performance or mitigate some sort of injury risk, then you're not really doing your job there. Because this idea, like guys do 10-15 minutes warm-up, go in, get the jerseys for 10-15 minutes, and back up into the pitch, that, that warm-up is pretty much useless in that perspective. But what I'm also doing is, it's a great chance to observe your players. You like Once you get to know your players, I'm walking the line up and down warm-up, and I see my midfielder, okay, when we do the walk and knee raise, or whatever it may be, he doesn't usually move that way. He usually moves in a different way. Why is he moving a bit different today? And I'm not diagnosing. I'm not doing anything. All I'm doing is observing and acknowledging. It's like, okay, there's something that's a bit different today. He's a bit out of norm. Let me talk to him. Is he a bit fatigued? Uh, how are you going on? And then he tells me, oh, shit, they didn't work. The fucking mists on my back. It's like, okay, it's nothing wrong. He's just a bit stressed and he's holding his posture a bit different because his mind is elsewhere or whatever. That's fine. Grand, we can take that thing. But people are so quick to, as you said, Look at landing mechanics. Oh, there's a little bit of knee valgus. His, when he runs, his knee goes a little bit this way. It's like, and then that means that he's at risk of this, this. It's like, we don't fucking know. It's like, what What does that that mean? It's like, um, so don't be, you should always be observing and just making notes, but not quick to diagnose things. People are too quickly to diagnose and not accept inter-individual differences. And like, I, I even fall into traps sometimes. I have one player in the rugby academy and, um, He's an international rugby player um, from Belgium. He's actually hopefully going to France soon to play professionally. But he does, I have him doing the um, landmine push press, we'll say, doing this kind of movement. And when he does it, I look at him, and my first exa my first instinct is like, there's something wrong there. Uh, but then when I actually look at him, I'm like, okay, his back positioning is fine, his torso angle is fine, he's doing, he's doing everything I want. He just looks a bit off, but then kind of, as coaches, we always want to overcorrect and like, no, you're doing it wrong. I want to improve you. It's like, I'm not like, look, he's moving the bar at the speed I want him to move with the body position and everything. It's like, yeah, it looks a bit funny, but he's doing everything right. So don't be, people love to overdiagnose and like come up with problems and find problems where there is none. Because as a coach, sometimes you have to just stand back and not overcoach your athlete and just like, yeah, look fine. Great. 
like this idea that every set we need to okay that was great now next set i want you to tweak this a little bit do this sometimes you're like, great work brilliant do it again it's like you know what i mean just people just don't over diagnose and find problems where there is none yeah and i think i think very often what can happen here is people end up talking past each other because like for example a coach like you says to someone who maybe is like real really nuanced and finicky about every last detail and i mean i've been there been that person like if so, so if someone was to say to me back when i th used to think more like that i'd be like oh you know you just don't care about the details whereas what, yeah. you're, what you're actually thinking about in your head or if i was helping someone to train now i'm thinking what is the trade-off between me telling this person that this is potentially a risky position to be in and them actually being in that position like is this actually a risky position and can i say that for sure because what we're often doing like in in like like you said is projecting our own biases and ideals of perfect movement onto that person so because we think a movement needs to look a certain way we then tell other people that they need to try and replicate that movement um and like that happens like it's that's not a ga specific thing at all like that's that's powerlifting. That's people who train in the gym every day, you know, um, you know, just laughing at people for their technique and stuff. Whereas if you actually break it down, it's like, well, they're not doing anything that we could be certain is actually causing them any increased risk of injury. So is it for certain that we want to tell that person that how they're moving is potentially harmful? Um, so, yeah, like this, this stuff is it's it's complicated, you know, and it's, yeah. it's always more complicated than it sounds. And you certainly can't just look at one position a person is in at one point in time and conclude that they have a higher risk of injury because of that not at all and like you said that getting out of that mindset where when you get more comfortable in your coaching you talk less you don't feel the need to constantly prove yourself to athletes and to the management and like that i've been in that position where i've had guys that as you said are too laser focused on these fucking irrelevant details and they're coming on to me and say do you not think we should be working on that and i'm like yeah, it might make a difference, it might not. Or they asked me, he's like, what if we did this and that? I was like, could make a difference, I'm not too sure. And then they're just kind of like, to get this idea, it's like, oh, well, you don't care, obviously, or you haven't done the research, I've done the research in this area. It's like, no, I know what the research says, but I'm just like, I'm mostly, and I mostly, and I find it funny, and again, it's something I want to put on Instagram today. It's like, guys, like, I'm evidence-based. I'm like, if you call yourself evidence-based, I want you to, one, define... And two, tell me the implication that has the S and C of the three following things. Uh, group mean average, inter-individual differences, and inter-day variability. I was like, if you can clearly define and tell me out there, and most guys can't, I was like, well, then fuck off. You, you, you don't understand how to apply evidence. And as I said, when people go too far down this rabbit hole that everything has to come from a paper or a meta-analysis to back up, they forget the clinical expertise side of the evidence-based practice model to get what you see in front of you you need to work with the athletes in front of you and what they are and kind of rely on your own skills and intuitions as coaches sometimes um which is like sports coaching is not an exact science snc is not an exact science ai would have taken over by now if it was but we work with humans that are very variable organisms so um that's something i'm starting to ramble now but what i main thing is like if you take from the guys that have been there done that you have John Kiley loves the phrase, it's like we've two eyes, two ears and one mouth for a reason, you know, we should be looking and listening to what our athletes are doing and saying and how to move and not even just not observing athletes during their movements, observe how they are between their sets, how are they interacting with the environment, how are they just holding themselves, that kind of body language, that's invaluable and these are the soft skills that maybe 
as we said, guys who have never coached in person, guys who started out online and call themselves athletic development coaches that have only ever worked online, these are the soft skills of coaching that you maybe miss out on and don't appreciate as much that make a huge, huge difference to your ability as a coach. Um, I, I had the privilege to uh, meet Lauren Landau, who's a, a great coach in the US. He's Landau Performance. He's head of performance now at Denver Broncos. And he'll even say that. He's like, he's, I walk around observe my athletes. He's like, I have a group of 60 athletes I work with on any given day at one time. He's like, I'm looking, I'm not diagnosing. I'm just taking mental notes, like observing these things. Like I don't need to correct every position, every athlete. Like if they're doing a single leg hip bridge and they're slightly off, it's like, I don't need to correct every single athlete every time. He's like, that's overcoaching and you're kind of missing the wood from the trees there. Perfect. I would agree, and I think we have run most of the time out, but we've also covered all of the questions, um, which was really Fantastic. good, because we ended up doing it pretty much indirectly. And I've got a question question for you um, in terms of having worked with teams. What do you feel, like, outside of if someone gets a, an acute injury, like a, an ankle sprain or a hamstring tear or whatever, what do you feel the role of the physiotherapist is in a team like like any any sort of field sports team? Oh, interesting question. Um, I do think that sports as a whole is coming much more interdisciplinary, which is a good thing. Like there's this idea of like let's shove the physio into his yeah. little room there. If one of my boys gets injured, great, physio will rope you down there. That, that's not. Uh, the way it should be and I think even the role of the S&C coach has changed a lot like if you're an S&C coach it's only good at programming in the gym you're probably not going to last long professional sport you need to become as more of athletic development you need to be a sports scientist S&C communicator all these type of things are coming more important um, within the role but how to answer the question most GA teams at the moment uh, unfortunately they only bring the physio in like that to acute, to train or to do acute injuries. Um, what their main role is, should be, is to come in and work with the SNC, bring their expertise, and they should be the ones that, okay, they know the epidemiology of the injuries within that sport. Like, I can read epidemiology papers, yeah, I can tell you the percentage breakdown, but you can tell me, okay, that's the injuries. And if I say to you, it's like most of them happen in this non contact last quarter of the game. What do you think, in your opinion, you should be able to say, as a physio, this where your understanding, if you're working with team sports, you should have an exercise science understanding where you should be able to say, it's like, well, I'd recommend we need to train the muscle in this range. And then if you say to me, it's like, you need to get the muscle trained in this range uh, with this kind of joint angles, then I can say, okay, well, I can use an RDL to do that. You know, I can draw my expertise and it should be collaborative, working together. And then... It should be also, the physio should be saying, say, look, this is how we should maybe monitor the athletes. Maybe if we do these kind of monitoring and we keep a record of this, we can, uh, things, if you're going to be working long-term, they should be looking at injury trends, injury patterns, um, kind of identifying trends and maybe areas, blind spots that we're not working on as the S&C. Um, then also, they should be f facilitating a kind of attitude and mentality and environment of resilience within the players. Kind of, like, there's so many of these players, and again, you kind of come down to, do I want to help form? Like, there's certain players that they will not play unless they get a rub before a match. And most physios just seem to give a rub before a match. And it's like, do I tell them, 
and refuse to give him the ropes, like that's actually doing nothing for you. Or do I give him the rope? It's not going to do him any harm. It gives him more confidence on the pitch. So then you're kind of caught between. And this, I think, over time will go away. But that physio should be actively trying to foster an environment where players are not concerned with every little niggle and kind of not just catastrophizing everything. It's like, guys come, like, oh, my back's a little tight there after trying to save it. And the physio's like, grand, jump up on the bed. I'll do a bit of a rope and some dry needling, which is like, no. The physio should be like, okay, let's look at your training load. Okay, yeah, look, you've had two weeks of kind of load training. This week you pushed a bit harder. I think it's just a bit of fatigue. It's like, uh, go home, get a good night's sleep, you know, uh, eat well, you should be fine. That's more of a physio's role is to kind of create this environment, work collaboratively with the S&C and the whole teams, and then obviously rehabilitation in conjunction with the S&C coach, uh, rehabilitation of more... Uh, we still have huge ACL problems within GAA. We have huge ankle sprain problems in GAA, huge hamstring strains, and then huge uh, groin pain issues within GAA then as well are the kind of four big ones we see coming up again and again. Um, so the, G- the effect of rehab and then post-rehab care where you're checking in with the athletes, like, are you doing the strengthening work? Are you getting stronger again? They're my main uh, roles. And it's an interesting question that you asked me. I wasn't... Um, I didn't anticipate that question. So, um, yeah, but unfortunately, most GA teams at club level don't have that luxury. The S&C coach is kind of thrown in to do all acute injury rehab, injury uh, prevention, all that kind of stuff. And their physio is just seen as the lad that comes in and gives straps up boys and yeah. uh, gives a rub. So what's your opinion? Where do you think is the role of the physio within team sports? Yeah, I agree with you. I actually think you nailed pretty much every area because, like, firstly, I, I totally agree with you in terms of first the first first things first should be an understanding of the evidence base. Like, if you're a, a physio, let's say, it, you should be going in and, like, presenting information to you, the S&C coach, about, right, these are this is what we see in the research, that the, the injuries that are most likely, when they happen, how they happen, etc. And then having that actual input into how SNC is run in that sort of collaborative way, you know, because the way I look at it, like you could have, you know, a great SNC program, um, but then, you know, the physio might have read stuff about, oh, when when you put this this exercise, like let's say the Copenhagen adductor exercise, you put this into a warm up, it reduces injury injury um, risk by this much. Um, that's 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 valuable from, from my perspective because that's actually that's actually them taking information from the area of expertise, giving it to the strength conditioning coach. And doing things collaboratively and, and sort of interweaving, and in, in opposed as opposed to it being a totally separate process. Um, obviously, no one's going to be in disagreement that the rehabilitation is guided by the physio. But I think, like in terms of injury risk reduction, like the most significant contributor there is going to be like load management and appropriate strength and conditioning. Like without a doubt, like they're the the two biggest things. And if the strength and conditioning coach um, who shouldn't be expected to do so if they're not up to scratch uh, in terms of injury epidemiology, specific statistics in terms of like what uh, what the risk factors are, etc. Like the physio has a key input there to create a collaborative, you know, intervention that's going to be really effective. And then, as you said, that monitoring of that over time, and then finally, like the one that I didn't, I wasn't sure if you're going to say it or not, but it's it's pretty much perfect. Um, is that reassurance, fostering the mentality education like that's the stuff that's really important like if you could give solid education about about pain about what the meaning of pain is even like what these things like stiffness and tightness what what they're the result of like if you can do that that to me is like 
100,000 times more valuable than just rubbing someone to make them feel good yeah. in the short term. You know, that's, that's, you can save that for another person, like, you know, those short term rubs or whatever. But, another um, person or profession? <laughs> not profession. Not profession. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not professional. <laughs> um, well, uh, I, I totally agree. And um, what I was going to say, one of the big things, and hopefully it's a lesson that we see, has to change within the culture. And I know probably a lot of physios listen to this. Uh, I know a lot of aspiring SNC coaches will be listening to this and GA players. But there is a culture, I'll say it, that physios look down upon SNC coaches. Um, SNC coaches look at physios uh, a lot of time any good snc coaches will look at most physios and be like you're doing fluffy stupid shit so like overall there's a lot of bad snc coaches and um, not intentionally they're, they're, like it's not that they're intentionally like no oh i know i'm doing shit but i'm going to make a lot of money because you don't make a lot of money as snc and ga to just they don't know better similarly there are a lot of absolutely shit physios and it's not because they're intentionally trying to be shit physios. It's because they just don't know better or haven't put in the work. I've I've worked in SNC environments where I've had an or a, it wasn't even a physio. I actually quizzed him on his qualifications, and he was a neuromuscular therapist who'd done a dry needling course. He dry needled the guy on the sideline on the ground at half time. Your man come over, he's like, oh, my, my hip is a bit tight. He's like, lay down there on the ground. <laughs> right there. Put your man shorts down. Dry needle. Like, get up and go on. You're fine. And I'm like, Jesus I've had that. I've worked with another physio where a lad picked up a little quad strain. Um, I asked, I was like, okay, the physio. And I was like, what did the physio say? The physio said, oh, the physio told me I have a gap in my muscle. And I was like, What? He's like, he said there's about an inch of a gap in the muscle. I was like, he said he can feel it. I was like, okay, Grant. I was like, Grant, he misheard the physio. Went in to the physio, and I asked him, like this, trying to be collaborative. I was like, oh, what's the story with the quad injury there? He's like, yeah, no. He's like, he's had quad injuries in the past now. He just he has a bit of a gap in the muscle. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, the quads run from like the hips down to the knee, and just down near the D there, there's about an inch of it missing. And I'm like, and again, he, he looked at me as if I was an idiot. And I was like, how is his knee flexing? How is anything working there? I was like, what are you talking about? Where there needs to be this culture where we have good physios, we have good SNCs, and they mutually respect each other. That the SNC doesn't try and do the physio's work and the physio doesn't try and do the SNC's work where they try to collaboratively work together. Again, it's idealistic thinking. But that's where, if we really want to push the field forward, um, we really need to start doing a better job. And I think what infuriates me, infuriates me, I should say, is GA, yes, it has its flaws. You can criticize certain elements, but ultimately you have a huge community of volunteers. You have these athletes who hold down full-time jobs and train four or five nights a week um, and also match the weekend they give up their lives for eight months a year yeah but a club and county level they give up so much of time to GAA that if we actually work together we could make their training so much better we could make their performance so much better and we can keep them on the pitch um with a better career and for longer and stop so many people dropping out in youth sports through injury um 
and I think we can just do so much better. I think guys give so much to life's GA, and I think as physios and SNCs, we owe that kind of sacrifice just to do a much fucking better job than what we're doing now. Yeah, and, and the very reason I actually asked that question is because, like, of like like you said, that sort of culture where physios kind of look down on SNC coaches, whereas I viewed the primary role of a physio as probably being influencing SNC. So I don't see how that can that can exist. And I think the biggest issues in physiotherapy are probably the fact that physio identifies with specific practices over actual outcomes. Like for example, like phys- and and that's a that's a common like thing in the general public as well, and that like they have certain expectations of physio. And that is very often an operator model of physiotherapy that just needs to be gotten rid of. The idea that the physio does something to you to fix you or to make you better. And that essentially removes the person's self-efficacy. So my perspective would be that the physio like physiotherapy needs to move to more of a take a step back focus on trying to help the person, giving them independence, letting them manage things going forward. Um, and like, I just don't see that filtering into GA or team sports at all, really, to be honest. Like, I haven't heard of any any good examples of that. But um, no, it's just, yeah. and that's, I will say, like, I, I, I'm a pragmatist at, at heart. So I understand I, I'm here kind of on my high horse saying, look, physio should be doing this, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand the difficulty of, a physio running private practice and trying to make ends meet because I know that and I have had experience I've uh, a friend of mine plays club football and he's your typical run-of-the-mill um, GA player he's a sheep farmer by day plays GA so he's your typical player that's going to go to a physiotherapist he went to a physio paid the money and I was like oh how did the physio get on and he's like to be honest I, I don't think I'll go to him again it's like oh why he's like didn't really do much. He didn't touch me or anything. Like, you know, he barely touched me. He's like, in there, he kind of just asked me about how it happened. And like, he was just talking to me really. And I'm like, you found a good fucking physio. Yeah. I was like, you so actually found like a good physio. job. <laughs> For most guys like that, if they go to a physio and they don't get a robe, they don't go through a bit of pain in getting a robe on the bed for 30, 40 minutes, they think the physio done a bad job. If a physio just talked, okay, how did this happen? Okay, let's talk about your training over the last few months. What's your training load like? Okay, what's your job stress? Okay, Grant, look, we seem to have kind of a pattern coming here. Why don't we try and modify your training load this way or something? Someone will walk out like, well, that was a waste of fucking 50 quid. He didn't yeah. even touch me. He's like, he's all those fancy machines there. He didn't use any of them on me. Where... And that's why physios, like, they might know in their heart that doing a rub is not doing any good, but they have to pay rent. They have to pay a mortgage, so they need to do the rub and the system breaks them and that's I understand that difficulty and yeah. again how do we change that I don't have the answer that's it's a culture change that needs to happen but how it happens I don't know like say one of the best physios or physical therapists you can go to in my opinion uh, is Quinn Hennock is a great guy does a lot of work people pay him quite a bit of money to jump on Skype with him for an hour where he just talks to you and identifies trends that you've done and gives you advice over Skype, and that's your physio. So, you know, where if, if you said that to any GA player, it's like, oh, I'll get, put you on the phone with a physio. I'll put you on the phone with Gary down in Limerick. He'll talk to you about it, and he'll sort you out. It's like, what do you mean over the phone? It's like, well, he'll have a chat with you, and we'll sort we'll get it sorted. It's like, oh, yeah, but he needs to rub me. I need someone to go get a rub. Like, like, we still live in an era where 
in my club, it's like the, there's this, just <laughs> the river, the River Liffey down there at, um, at Garvin. Guys pick up a, a quad strain, a hamstring strain. The club still recommends, and I've heard anecdotally, you'll have the old boys on the sideline and the manager's like, I want to see you down that river for 20 minutes tomorrow night, where they go and stand in the river. But you know what? They have to actively do something. It's painful. It's on. Dis- or it's, uh, not comfortable, they're enduring discomfort they come out in their own head, they have an expectancy effect, they've had yeah. an intervention and they've had a bit of discomfort perfect placebo, they're like I feel fucking great yeah. and this kind of this magic water in the river and it's still it's still there, you have an ankle sprain boys are told, go down, stick your ankle in that river for half an hour and that's the way it, it works and anyone that's involved in rural GA around Ireland listen to this can more than likely identify it Actually, if anyone wants to, if anyone's still listening at this stage, if you want to send myself or Gary or share it on your story, your best GA tip that you've heard from our lads. <laughs> like, uh, do guys, have you heard of Gary guys um, told to rub a stick of butter on their <laughs> ankle? If you've got a good Kerrygold stick of butter and rub that on, no? Oh, yeah, that's great. Like, we, still live, we still live in an Ireland where um, there's specific putchines that are called rubbing putchine. It's like, you don't drink it. You just get the putchine and rub it onto the sore joints. And yeah, you're fucking, what is essentially white spirits and you're rubbing it into your ankle and it's a bit of a warming sensation. Like, oh, you feel great. And like, that's, we still live in a, a, a country where guys are recommended to rub butter and fucking illegal distilled alcohol into their joints to solve out their issues. Like it's, oh, we live in a, a mad world. But but like the thing is, think of the last things you, the last three things you just said. They sound fucking ridiculous. So the same. But physio, some physios do stuff that is no less ridiculous than that. Like lots, cause, because lots of lots of interventions that physios still administer today today are no better than things that are that seem implausible just because of placebo effects. Like you do things like ultrasound. And you turn off the ultrasound machine. You literally plug it out. You plug it out, and it has the it same effect. Straight. It's like, are you yeah. serious? Like, so you might laugh at the lads telling them to go down to the Liffey, but they're not charging fifty euro for it. So yeah, like, it. <laughs> yeah, they're they're the big ones of hard. Stick it in the river. Get a stick of butter. Rub it in, um, and then the putching obviously was one. And I, I, I remember as a sixteen year old GA player myself rubbing putching into my hamstring and quads for recovery and. Like that, they stink me now when I think back. <laughs> but that—that's what was done and is still regularly done in this country. And I'm—I'm I'm sure people might be laughing, uh, listening, but people will have worse stories than that. I can imagine some of the things that was done was just that is done is insane. You can be sure of it. You can be sure of it. Um, but yeah, like I suppose, just just think think of the Kerrygold butter now. The next time that you go to your physio and they start like scraping you with a knife with grass and or instrument assisted soft tissue massage like that mightn't be that far from you just being getting carry gold like rubbed on you with a butter knife like i mean like what's yeah. the difference i don't see any difference and the, the scraping is like uh you've you've plenty of podcasts we get onto it but like some of the shit physios do is it's ridiculous just scraping shit and like as i said guys are great at coming up with a nice narrative and wrapping it up in a logical fallacy and just feeding yeah. it to people and people will latch onto that all day long. Literally, and that's it. 
But yeah, I think that that covers probably everything we wanted to talk about. We probably went down a few rabbit holes, and I think we could probably go down a lot more. Like maybe we'll do a second episode sometime because I think what would be brilliant would be to talk about the agility stuff and maybe even now that you mention it, recovery because I think that's a whole other thing that's like a deep rabbit hole that there's yeah. a lot of fallacies there and a lot of myths and you know people not prioritizing the right things and doing silly things and and yeah. So Dave. Before we go, where can people find out more about the work that you do and whatever else you'd like to plug? Oh, this is great. That's where I get to whore myself out. Yeah, um, yeah so I suppose social media is our Synapse Performance on Facebook, at Synapse Performance Instagram, and David underscore Synapse at Twitter. Um, you'll find everything on the website, synapseperformance.com. If you want to email me, go ahead, shoot me a message on any socials, but if you want to email me any questions, do so, David at Synapse Performance. Com. What I plug, I suppose, I have my own podcast, um, Synapse Performance Podcast. I have my own online coaching services. You can plug that. And I suppose you can obviously hear while I talk, I'm very impassioned about GAA. I do a lot of regular speaking events. So if you're interested in, you know, having a talk in your GAA club, hit me up. I Again, I know GAA's club struggle with finance, so I have a few intuitive ways or kind of innovative ways that clubs can even get talks for free. So get on to me about that. And um, also, if you're an s coach or your manager working with a team, what I understand that most clubs don't have the luxury of having a full-time s and So what I do is consultancy. You know, I'll jump on Skype or I'll come to your club, evaluate what you're doing now, make a plan and recommendation for you, and just like once off and follow up with you at four and eight weeks after to see how you're getting on with implementing that. And again, yeah, just follow on the socials. I have a few GA-specific products that will be launched in the next couple of months. So if you're interested in that area, uh, stay tuned. And that's pretty much everything I have to give away now at this moment. Gary, I think I've sold my soul enough there. <laughs> yeah, and just before we close out, the only other thing I would say is that, you know, sometimes you can listen to podcasts like this and you can think that, oh, these guys are pointing out all the stupid stuff. Like, they think they're so great. And, like, that's really not the case. Like, it's just the main the main point of... of pointing out things that maybe aren't so helpful is for the benefit of other people because we both recognize that we've said lots of things that we oh, would yeah. disagree with you know in the past and even now like there's probably things in this podcast that we have mentioned that in five ten years time we look back on and be like oh man that was stupid wasn't it we didn't really yeah. know that at the time um, and that's just the way being as you said evidence-based or science-based essentially works like you have to maintain uncertainty when you're talking about a lot of these things and that's why you'll hear most people who are actually science-based say words like likely, might be, you know, could be the case, as opposed to this is the way, because like we didn't give any hard line recommendations in this podcast because there really, there really are none. And especially in, in team sports, when you're dealing with individuals, you know, th there's just no way to give specific hard line recommendations. So if I was to give people a nugget of, of advice, when you, when you are taking advice from others or us, it's like, if the recommendations are very, very specific, rigid, and, you know, hard-lined, and that's a general recommendation, I'm like, it's probably not the best advice. Would you agree? A hundred percent. I think that is important. Like, when it comes to this, uh, like, I ask myself regularly, it's like, what have I changed my mind on in the last 12 months? If I can quickly point to a couple of examples, what have 180 my position on, then I'm saying, okay, I need to challenge my own biases again. I'm not growing. Yeah. The only reason I can put myself on this pedestal and want to be an educator is because I have the luxury of 
a career that has allowed me to get deep into the practice of the applied stuff. It's allowed me to get deep into the research of this area, and it's allowed me to make more mistakes than the average person in this area has made. So I've I've made the mistakes already and realized those mistakes and learned from them before maybe most of the listeners have. So it's not that I'm better or more knowledgeable per se. It's I've already made the mistakes and kind of learned to learn from them. And uh, as you said, everything is recommendations with a bit of nuance, a bit of caveat here. There are some big names within the GA or targeting on the GA niche within this country. And if anyone follows me on social media and see my engagements and debates, they will know who I'm talking about. And like, apart from the, <laughs> I won't say they are, there are rumors that they could potentially be on some performance enhancing substances. I don't know. Uh, people can make their own <laughs> judgments there. Uh, but when someone like that comes out, any question they're asked, like, oh, I have the answer, boom, it's this, it's this. Like, they're just, everything is done out of context. And again, I'd ask the questions, like, who have they worked with? What have they actually done? It's like, where's the social proof? It's like, I, I think it's gas where I've had the privilege of going to different clubs to speak. I've had the privilege of being asked on the different podcasts. I had performance at, Rugby Academy Ireland, where these guys who place themselves the experts in GA, it's like, why are no clubs working with them? Why are they've never talked talk about GA specific events? Like, it's just a bit strange. Again, if you start to question and come to your own conclusions, and again, I, I'm hesitant to ever make these comments because most people jump like, oh, you're just jealous how much money he makes. And, Fuck yeah, I'd love to make that much money doing uh, selling products through GA, and one day I intend to do that, but. Not until I can stand over ethically and wholeheartedly the quality of the information and product I put out into that sphere. So, yeah, again, we've talked for long enough on the podcast, but yeah, we'll shit on a lot of medics, but we try to. It's just because, as I said, I hate to see guys sacrifice so much of their time and money. And, like, most GA players aren't wealthy, they're struggling with families and to make a mortgage like most people, and they're wasting money on these supplements on these programs on these products that they just do not need where if they were given access to better information they would save that money that they could spend on another holiday with their family or spend the time going out for dinner with their um, partner and having a better relationship and just having a better quality of life overall so yeah am i jealous how much money these guys make certainly am um would I like to make it the same way they do? No, I I couldn't because I know that there is a human cost to it at the end of the day. So that is probably the part and words I'll leave you with, Gary, I imagine. <laughs> Savage. So to everyone that listened, thanks very much for listening. If you have questions, you can hit me up on Instagram, hit the triage email up. All these will be in the link in the bio or hit Dave up with an email or message on Instagram wherever you want to contact him. So Thanks very much for listening, guys, and we will see you next week.